Chapter Nine of *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Nine. News of the Captive. During the nine months that had elapsed since the retreat from before Seringapatam, Dick had been occupied in following out the main object of his presence in Mysore. Finding that Purseram Bo's army was the first that would be engaged in active service, he asked permission from the general to join it. This was at once granted, and Lord Cornwallis introduced him to the officer in command of the Bombay troops attached to that army, informing him of the object they had in view. You'll not be much use as an interpreter, Cornwallis said, for as the country in which you are going to operate formed until lately a part of the Maratha dominions, Maratha will be principally spoken. He will therefore go simply as an officer of my staff, attached for the present to your command. He has asked me to allow him to take with him twenty men belonging to the troop of his uncle, the Rajah of Tripatli. His object in doing so is that he will be able to traverse the country independently and can either rejoin me here or go to one of the other columns operating against the hill forts if it should seem to him expedient to do so should you desire to make a reconnaissance at any time while he is with you you will find him useful as an escort and will not be obliged to ask purser and bow for a party of his cavalry dick was sorry to leave his uncle whose tent he had now shared for the last ten months he found himself, however, very comfortable with the Bombay troops, being made a member of the mess, consisting of the officer in command and the four officers of his staff. Wishing to have some duties with which to occupy himself, he volunteered to act as an aide-de-camp, and although the work was little more than nominal, it gave him some employment. When not otherwise engaged, he generally rode with Surajah, whom his uncle had appointed to command the twenty troopers. In the year that had elapsed since his arrival in India, Dick had grown considerably, and broadened out greatly, and was now a powerful young fellow of over seventeen. He had, since the troop joined the army of Lord Cornwallis, exchanged his civilian dress for the undress uniform of an officer, which he had purchased at the sale of the effects of a young lieutenant on the general's staff, who had died just as the army arrived before Bangalore. It was indeed necessary that he should do this, riding about as he did either on the staff of the general or with the officers of the quartermaster's department. There would be no difficulty in renewing his uniform, for hardship, fever, and war had carried off a large number of officers as well as men, and the effects were always sold by auction on the day following the funeral. Many hill fortresses were captured by the Marathis, but few offered any resistance, as their commanders knew well that there was no chance of their being relieved, while the men were, in most cases, delighted at the prospect of an escape from their enforced service, and of freedom to return to their homes. In a few of these forts English captives were found. Some had been there for years, their very existence being apparently forgotten by the tyrant. Some had been fairly treated by the Mysore governor, and where this was the case the latter was furnished by the British officers with papers testifying to the kindness with which they had treated the prisoners, and recommending them to the officers of any of the allied forces they might encounter on their way home, or when established there. Upon the other hand, some of the prisoners were found to have been all but starved, and treated with great brutality, in two cases where the captives said that some of their companions had died from the effects of the ill-treatment they had received, 
the governors were tried by court-martial and shot, while some of the others they sentenced to be severely flogged. Every captive released was closely scrutinized by Dick and eagerly questioned. From one of them he obtained news that his father had certainly been alive four years previously, for they had been in prison together in a hill fort near Bangalore. "'I was a civilian and he a sailor,' he said. "'Consequently neither of us were of any use to drill in Tipu's battalions, and had been sent up there. Your father was well, then. Governor was a good fellow, and we had nothing much to complain of. Mr. Holland was a favourite of his, for being a sailor he was handy at all sorts of things. He could mend a piece of broken furniture, repair the lock of a musket, and make himself generally useful. He left there before I did, as the governor was transferred to some other fort. Uh, I never heard where it was. And he took your father with him. Uh, I don't know whether he had to poo's orders to do so, or whether he took him simply because he liked him. At any rate, he was the only prisoner who went with him. The rest of us remained there till a few months back when the fort was abandoned. Uh, it was just after the capture of Bangalore, and the place could have offered no resistance if a body of troops had been sent against it. At any rate, an order arrived one morning, and a few hours afterwards the place was entirely abandoned, and we and the garrison marched here. My father was quite well? Oh, yes, quite well. He used to talk to me at times of trying to make his escape, but being a sailor, I have no doubt that he could have got down from the precipice on which the fort stood. But he knew that if he did so, we should all suffer for it, and probably be all put to death, as soon as Tippoo heard that one of us had escaped, for that was always done in order to deter prisoners from trying to get away. Do you think there's any chance of his being alive? Well, that's more than I can possibly say. You see, we've not known much of what's passing outside our prison. Some of the guards were good-natured enough, and would occasionally give us a scrap of news, but we heard most from the ill-tempered ones who delighted in telling us anything they knew that would give us pain. Uh, three or four months ago we heard that every white prisoner in Seringapatam had been put to death by Tipu's orders, and that doubtless there would be a similar clearance everywhere else. But then, again, we were told that the English had retreated, beaten from before Seringapatam, and that the last of them would soon be down the ghats, but whether the prisoners have been killed in other hill forts like this I cannot say. Although I suppose not, or we should not have escaped. Certainly no such orders can have been sent to the forts here, for we found a few prisoners in several of them. Of course, it may be otherwise in the forts near the capital, which Tipu might have thought were likely to fall into our hands, while he may not have considered it worth while to send the same orders to places so far away as this, where no British force was likely to come. Still, at any rate, it's a great satisfaction that my father was alive four years ago and that he was in kind hands. That's all in favor of my finding him still alive in one of the places we shall take, for Lord Cornwallis intends to besiege some of the fortresses that command the passes, because he cannot undertake another siege of Seringapatam until he can obtain supplies, freely and regularly, from beyond the Ghats. As nothing whatever can be obtained from the country round here, so completely is it wasted by Tipu's cavalry. I have, therefore, great hopes that my father may still be found in one of these forts. I hope indeed that you may find him. I'm convinced that the governor would save his life if he could do so. Though, on the other hand, uh, he would, I'm sure, carry out any order he might receive from the Tipu. Of course, he may not be in charge of a fort now, and may have been appointed colonel of one of the regiments. However, it's always better to hope that things will come as you wish them. However unlikely it may seem that they'll do so. We've been living on hope here, though the chances of our ever being released were small indeed. 
Of course, we didn't even know that Tippoo and the English were at war, until we heard that an English army was besieging Bangalore. And even then we all felt that even if Tippoo were beaten and forced to make peace, it would make no difference to us. He kept back hundreds of prisoners when he was defeated before, and would certainly not surrender any he now holds unless compelled to do so. And no one would be able to give information as to the existence of captives in these distant forts. And yet in the teeth of all these improbabilities we continued to hope, and the hopes have been realized. The capture of the forts by the Maratha army was abruptly checked. Having so far met with such slight opposition, Perserambo became overconfident, and scattered his force over a wide extent of country, in order that they might more easily find food and forage. In this condition they were suddenly attacked by Tipu, who took advantage of the English being detained at Bangalore, while the transport train was being reorganized, to strike a blow at the Marathis. And the strike was a heavy one. Many of the detached parties were completely destroyed, and the Maratha general, after gathering the rest to his standard, was forced to retreat until strong reinforcements were sent him from Bangalore. Learning from them that it was probable Lord Cornwallis would advance as soon as they rejoined him, Dick determined to go back to Bangalore, as it was unlikely that, after the severe check they had received, the Marathis would resume the offensive for a time. Surajah and the men were glad to return to the troop, and as soon as the Mysorean force returned to Seringapatam, Dick, without waiting for the infantry to get in motion, rode rapidly across the country with his little party. He accompanied the English army during their operations, obtaining permission to do so with the columns engaged in the siege of the hill fortresses, and was present at the capture of all the most important strongholds. To his bitter disappointment no English prisoners were found in any of them, and it was but too certain that all who might have been there had been massacred, by Tipu's orders, on the first advance of the British against Sarangapatam. Great indeed was the satisfaction of the army when they at last came in sight of the city. The capital of Mysore stood on an island in the river Kauvery. This was four miles in length and two in breadth. The town stood in its centre, the fort at the northern end. The island was approached by two bridges, one close to the fort, the other at the south, both being defended by strong batteries. There were also three fords, two of these being at the north end of the island, and also defended by batteries. The third was near the centre of the island, a mile below the fort, and leading to the native town. The fort was separated from the rest of the island by a deep ditch cut across it. It was defended by numerous batteries. There were two gardens on the island, full of large trees, one of them being the burial-place of Hyder Ali. This was connected with the fort by two avenues of trees. The country round was flat, a considerable portion being almost level with the river, and devoted to the cultivation of rice, while at other points a forest extended almost to the bank. After obtaining a view from some high ground of the city and of Tipu's army encamped beyond its walls, the British force took up its position six miles to the northwest of the city. No sooner had the army reached their camping ground than Lord Cornwallis with his staff reconnoitred the approaches. A thick hedge formed by a wide belt of thorny shrubs interlaced and fastened together by cords extended from the bank of the river about a thousand yards above Seringapatam, and, making a wide sweep, came down to it again opposite the other end of the island. It was within the shelter of this formidable obstacle that Tipu's army was encamped. Within the enclosed space were seven or eight eminences, on which strong redoubts had been erected. 
Fearing that Tippoo might, as soon as he saw the position taken up by the assailants, sally out with his army, take the field, and, as before, cut all his communications, Lord Cornwallis determined to strike a blow at once. At sunset, orders were accordingly issued for the forces to move in three columns at three o'clock, by which time the moon would be high enough to light up thoroughly the ground to be traversed. The center column, consisting of 3,700 men, under Lord Cornwallis himself, was to burst through the hedge at the center of the enemy's position, to drive the enemy before them, and, if possible, to cross the ford to the island with the fugitives. This, however, was not to be done until the center column was reinforced by that under General Meadows, which was to avoid a strong redoubt at the northwest extremity of the hedge, and, entering the fence at a point between the redoubt and the river, drive the enemy before it until it joined the center column. Colonel Meadows had 3,300 men under his command. The left column, consisting of 1,700 men under Colonel Maxwell, was first to carry a redoubt on Carrigut Hill, just outside the fence, and, having captured this, to cut its way through the hedge, to cross the river at once with a portion of the center column. Unfortunately, owing to a misunderstanding as to the order, the officer guiding General Meadows' column, instead of taking it to a point between the northwest redoubt and the river, led it directly at the fort. This was stoutly defended, and cost the British eighty men and eleven officers. Leaving a strong garrison here, the column advanced, but came upon another redoubt of even greater strength and magnitude, and the general, fearing that the delay that would take place in capturing it would entirely disarrange the plan of the attack, thought he had better make his way out through the hedge, march round it to the point where the center column had entered it, and so give Lord Cornwallis the support he must need, opposed as he was to the whole army of Tippoo. In the meantime, Colonel Maxwell's force had stormed the work on Carrigut Hill, and had made its way through the hedge, suffering heavily as it did so, from the fire of a strong body of the enemy concealed in a water-course. The head of the center column, under General Knox, after cutting its way through the hedge, pushed on with leveled bayonets, thrust its way through the enemy's infantry, and, mingling with a mass of fugitives, crossed the main ford close under the guns of the fort, and took possession of a village halfway between the town and the fort. Unfortunately, in the confusion, but three companies had followed him. The rest of the regiment and three companies of sepoys crossed lower down and gained possession of a palace on the bank of the river. The officer in command, however, not knowing that any others had crossed and receiving no orders, waited until day began to break. He then recrossed the river and joined Lord Cornwallis, a portion of whose column, having been reinforced by Maxwell's column, crossed the river nearly opposite the town. As they were crossing, a battery of the enemy's artillery opened a heavy fire upon them, but Colonel Knox, with his three companies, charged it in the rear, drove out the defenders, and silenced the guns. All this time Lord Cornwallis was, with the reserve of the central column, eagerly waiting the arrival of General Meadows' division. This, in some unaccountable way, had missed the gap in the hedge by which the center column had entered, and, marching on, halted at last at Carrigut Hill, where it was not discovered until daylight. The Mysore army on its left was still unbroken, and had been joined by large numbers of troops from the center. On discovering the smallness of the force under Lord Cornwallis, they attacked it in overwhelming numbers led by Tippoo himself. The British infantry advanced to meet them with the bayonet, and drove them back with heavy loss. They rallied and returned to the attack again and again, but were as often repulsed. Continuing their attacks, however, until daylight, 
when Cornwallis, discovering at last the position of General Meadows, joined him on Carrigut Hill. When day broke, the commanders of the two armies were able to estimate the results of the night's operations. On the English side, the only positions gained were the works on Carrigut Hill, the redoubt at the northwest corner of the hedge, another redoubt captured by the center column, and the positions occupied by the force under Colonels Stuart and Knox at the eastern end of the island. The Sultan found that his army was much reduced in strength, no less than twenty-three thousand men being killed, wounded, or missing. Of these the missing were vastly the most numerous, for ten thousand chelas, young Hindus whom Tipu had carried off in his raids, and forced to become soldiers and nominally Mohammedans, had taken advantage of the confusion and marched away with their arms to the forest of Coorg. Tipu made several determined effects to drive Colonel Stewart's force off the island, and to recapture the redoubt, but was repulsed with such heavy loss that he abandoned the attempt altogether, evacuated the other redoubts, and brought his whole army across onto the island. Tipu now attempted to negotiate. He had already done so a month before, but Lord Cornwallis had refused to accept his advances, saying that negotiation was useless with one who disregarded treaties and violated articles of capitulation. "'Send hither,' he wrote, "'the garrison of Coimbatur, and then we will listen to what you have to say.' Lord Cornwallis alluded to the small body of troops who, under Lieutenants Chalmers and Nash, had bravely defended that town when it had been attacked by one of Tipu's generals. The gallant little garrison had surrendered at last on the condition that they should be allowed to march freely away. This condition had been violated by Tipu, and the garrison had been marched as prisoners to Seringapatam. The two officers had been kept in the fort, but most of the soldiers and twenty-seven other European captives who had lately been brought in from the hill forts were lodged in the village that Colonel Knox had first occupied on crossing the river and had all been released by him. Some of these had been in Tupu's hands for many years, and their joy at their unexpected release was unspeakable. Preparations were now made for the siege. General Abercrombie was ordered up with a force of six thousand men, but before his arrival Lieutenant Chalmers was sent in with a letter from Tupu, asking for terms of capitulation. Negotiations were indeed entered into, but Doubting Tipu's good faith, the preparations for the siege were continued, and upon the arrival of General Abercrombie's force on the 15th of February, siege operations were commenced at the end of the island still in British possession. A few days afterwards the army was astounded to hear that the conditions had been agreed upon, and that hostilities were to cease at once. So great was the indignation, indeed, that a spirit of insubordination and almost mutiny was evinced by many of the corps. They had suffered extreme hardships, had been engaged in most arduous marches, had been decimated by fever and bad food, and they could scarce believe their ears when they heard that they were to hold their hands, now that after a year's campaigning Seringapatam was at their mercy, and that the man who had butchered so many hundred English captives, who had wasted whole provinces and carried half a million people into captivity, who had been guilty of the grossest treachery, and whose word was absolutely worthless, was to escape personal punishment. Still higher did the indignation rise, both among officers and men, when the conditions of the treaty became known, and it was discovered that no stipulation whatever had been made for the handing over of the English prisoners still in Mysore, previous to a cessation of hostilities. This condition, at least, should have been insisted upon, and carried out previous to any negotiations being entered upon. 
The reasons that induced Lord Cornwallis to make this treaty, when Seringapatam lay at his mercy, have ever been a mystery. Tippoo had proved himself a monster unfit to live, much less to rule, and the crimes he had committed against the English should have been punished by the public trial and execution of their author. To conclude peace with him now was to enable him to make fresh preparations for war, and to necessitate another expedition at enormous cost and great loss of life. Tippoo had already proved that he was not to be bound either by treaties or oaths, and lastly it would have been thought that, as a general, Lord Cornwallis would have wished his name to go down in posterity in connection with the conquest of Mysore, and the capture of Seringapatam, rather than with the memorable surrender of Yorktown, the greatest disaster that ever befell a British army. The conditions were in themselves onerous, and had they been imposed upon any other than a brutal and faithless tyrant, might have been deemed sufficient. Tippoo was deprived of half of his dominions, which were to be divided among the Allies, each taking the portions adjacent to their own territory. The sum of three million three hundred thousand pounds was to be paid for the expenses of the war. All prisoners of the Allied powers were to be restored. Two of Tippoo's sons were to be given up as hostages. Even after they had been handed over there were considerable delays before Tippoo's signature was obtained, and it was not until Lord Cornwallis threatened to resume hostilities that, on the 18th of March, a treaty was finally sealed. Of the ceded territories, the Marathis and the Nizam each took a third as their share, although the assistance they had rendered in the struggle had been but of comparatively slight utility. It may indeed be almost said that it was given to them as a reward for not accepting the offers Tippoo had made them, of joining with him against the British. The British share included a large part of the Malabar coast, with the forts of Calicut and Kalanor, and the territory of our ally, the Rajah of Coorg. These sessions gave us the passes leading into Mysore from the west. On the south we gained possession of the fort of Dindigul, and the districts surrounding it, while on the east we acquired the tract from Ambur to Karur, and so obtained possession of several important fortresses, together with the chief passes by which Hyder had made his incursions into the Karnatak. Dick felt deeply the absence of any proviso in the treaty, that all prisoners should be restored previous to a cessation of hostilities, at the same time admitting the argument of his uncle that, although under such an agreement some prisoners might be released, there was no means of ensuring that the stipulation would be faithfully carried out. "'You oh, see, Dick, no one knows, or has indeed the faintest idea, what prisoners Tippoo still has in his hands. We do not know how many have been murdered during the years Tippoo has reigned. Men who have escaped have from time to time brought down news of murders in the places where they had been confined, but they have been known little of what has happened elsewhere. Moreover, we have learned that certainly fifty or sixty were put to death at Seringapatam before we advanced upon it the first time. We know, too, that some were murdered in the hill forts that we have captured. But how many remain alive at the present time we have not the slightest idea. Tippoo might hand over a dozen and take a solemn oath that there was not one remaining, and though we might feel perfectly certain that he was lying, we should be in no position to prove it. The stipulation ought to have been made, if only as a matter of honour, but it would have been of no real efficacy. Of course, if we had dethroned Tippoo and annexed all his territory, we should undoubtedly have got at all the prisoners, wherever they may have been hidden but we could hardly have done that. It would have aroused the jealousy and fear of every native prince in India. It would have united the Nizam and the Marathis against us, and would even have been disapproved of in England, 
where public opinion is adverse to further acquisitions of territory, and where people are, of course, altogether ignorant of the monstrous cruelties perpetrated by Tippoo, not only upon English captives, but upon his neighbors everywhere. Naturally, I am prejudiced in favor of this treaty, for the handing over of the country from Ambur to Karur, with all the passes and forts, will set us free at Tripatli from the danger of being again overrun and devastated by Mysore. My people will be able to go about their work peacefully and in security, free alike from fear of wholesale invasion or incursions of robber bands from the Ghats. All my wastelands will be taken up, and my revenue will be trebled. And there's another thing. Now that the English possess territory beyond that of the Nabob of Arcot, and are gradually spreading their power north, there can be little doubt that before long the whole country of Arcot, Travancore, Tranjore, and the other small native powers will be incorporated in the British dominions. Arcot is powerless for defense, and while during the last two wars it has been nominally an ally of the English, the Nabob has been able to give them no real assistance whatever, and the burden of his territory has fallen on them. They took the first step when, at the beginning of the present war, they arranged with him to utilize all the resources and collect the revenues of his possessions, and to allow him an annual income for the maintenance of his state and family. This is clearly the first step towards taking the territory into their own hands and managing its revenues, and the same will be done in other cases. Lord Cornwallis, the other day, in thanking me for the services that you and I and the troop have rendered, promised me that an early arrangement should be made by which I should rule Tepatli under the government of Madras instead of under the Nabob. This, you see, will be virtually a step in rank, and I shall hold my land direct from the English instead of from a prince who has become, in fact, a puppet in their hands. A few days later the army set off on its march for Mysore, and the same day the Rajah, after making his adieus to Lord Cornwallis, started with his troop for Tripatli, making his way by long marches instead of following the slow progress of the army. After a couple of days at Tripatli, they went down to Madras and brought back the Rajah's household. The meeting between Dick and his mother was one of mixed feeling. It was twenty months since the former had left with his uncle, and he was now nearly eighteen. He had written whenever there was an opportunity of sending any letters, and although his position as interpreter on the staff of the general had relieved her from any great anxiety on his account, she was glad indeed to see him again. Upon the other hand, the fact that as the war went on, and fortress after fortress had been captured, no news came to her that her hopes had been realized, and that the war had now come to a termination without the mystery that hung over her husband being in any way cleared up, had profoundly depressed Mrs. Holland, and it was with mingled tears of pleasure and sorrow that she fell on his neck on his return to Madras. "'You must not give way, mother,' Dick said, as she sobbed out her fears that all hope was at an end. "'Remember that you have never doubted he was alive, and that you have always said you would know if any evil fate had befallen him, and I have always felt confident that you were right. There's nothing changed.' I certainly have not succeeded in finding him, but we have found many prisoners in some of the little out-of-the-way forts. Now some of them have been captives quite as long as he has. Therefore there is no reason whatever why he should not also be alive. I have no thought of giving up the search as hopeless. I mean to carry out our old plans, and certainly I am much better fitted to do so than I was when I first landed here. I know a great deal about Mysore, and though I don't speak the language as a native, I have learned a good deal of it and can speak it quite as well as the natives of the Ghats and outlying provinces. Surajah, who is a great friend of mine, has told me 
that if I go he will go too, and that will be a tremendous help. Anyhow, as long as you continue to believe firmly that father is still alive, I mean to continue the search for him. I do believe that he is alive, Dick, as firmly as ever. I have not lost hope in that respect. It's only that I doubt now whether he will ever be found. Well, that is my business, mother. As long as you continue to believe that he is still alive, I shall continue to search for him. I have no other object in life at present. It will be quite soon enough for me to think of taking up the commission I have been promised, when you tell me that your feeling that he is alive has been shaken. Mrs. Holland was comforted by Dick's assurance and confident tone, and, putting the thought aside for a time, gave herself up to the pleasure of his return. They had found everything at Tripotli as they had left it, for the Mysore horsemen had not penetrated so far north, before Tippoo turned his course east to Pondicherry. The people had months before returned to their homes and avocations. One evening the Rajah said, as they were all sitting together, "'I hear from my wife, Dick, that your mother has told her you shall intend to carry out your original project.' "'Yes, Uncle, I have quite made up my mind as to that. There are still plenty of places where he may be, and certainly I am a good deal more fitted for travelling about in disguise in Mysore than I was before.' The Rajah nodded. "'Yes, I think, Dick, you are as capable of taking care of yourself as anyone could be.' I hear that Surajah is willing to go with you, and this will certainly be a great advantage. He has proved himself thoroughly intelligent and trustworthy, and I have promised him that some day he shall be captain of the troop. You are not thinking of starting just yet, I suppose. Oh, no, uncle, I thought of staying another month or two before I go off again. Mother says she cannot let me go before that. I fancy it will take you longer than that, Dick, before you can pass as a native. Dick looks surprised. Why, uncle, I did pass as a native eighteen months ago. Yes, you did, Dick, but for how long? You went into shops, bought things, chatted for a short time with natives, and so on. But that is not like living among them. You would be found out before you had been a single day in the company of a native. Dick looked still more surprised. How, uncle, what do I do that they would know me by? It is not what you do, Dick, but it is what you don't do. You can't sit on your heels, squat, as you call it. This is the habitual attitude of every native. He squats while he cooks. He squats for hours by the fire, smoking and talking. He never stands for any length of time, and except upon a divan or something of that sort, he never sits down. Before you can go and live among the natives and pass as one for any length of time, you must learn to squat as they do, for hours at a stretch. And I can tell you that it is not by any means an easy accomplishment to learn. I myself have quite lost the power. I used to be able to do it as a boy, but from always sitting on divans or chairs in European fashion, I have got out of the way of it, and I don't think I could squat for a quarter of an hour to save my life." Dick's mother and cousins laughed heartily, but he said seriously, "'You are quite right, Uncle. I wonder I never thought of it before. It was stupid of me not to do so. Of course, when I have been talking with Sarajah or other officers by a campfire, I have sat on the ground, but I see that it would never do in native dress. I will begin at once." "'Wait a moment, Dick,' the Rajah said. "'There are other things which you will have to practice. You may have to move in several disguises, and must learn to comport yourself in accordance with them. You must remember that your motions are quicker and more energetic than are those of people here. Your walk is different. The swing of the arms, your carriage, are all different from theirs. You are unaccustomed to walk either barefooted or in native shoes. Now all these things have to be practiced before you can really pass muster. Therefore I propose that you shall at once accustom yourself to the attire, which you can do in our apartments of an evening. 
The Rani and the boys will be able to correct your first awkwardnesses, and to teach you much. After a week or two you must stain your face, arms, and legs, and go out with Rajbulub in the evening. You must keep your eyes open and watch everything that passes, and do as you see others do. When Rajbulub thinks that you can pass muster, you will take to going out with him in the daylight, and so you will come in time to reach a point that it will be safe for you to begin your attempt. Do not watch only the peasants. There is no saying that it may not be necessary to take to other disguises. Observe the traders, the soldiers, and even the fakirs. You will see that they walk each with a different mane. The trader is slow and sober. The man who wears a sword walks with a certain swagger. The fakir is everything by turns. He whines and threatens. He sometimes mumbles his prayers, and sometimes shrieks at the top of his voice. When you are not riding or shooting, lad, do not spend your time in the garden or with the women. Go into the town and keep your eyes open. Bear in mind that you are learning a lesson, and that your life depends upon your being perfect in every respect. As to your first disguise, I will speak to Rajbulub, and he will get it ready by to-morrow evening. The dress of the peasant of Mysore differs little from that here, save that he wears rather more clothing than is necessary in this warm climate. End of chapter 9 News of the Captive Recording by Mike Harris